Hello, Beat Check listeners. I'm Gosha Wojniacka, and I'm the environmental justice reporter at The Oregonian. Today, I'm with Dr. Thomas Joseph Doherty, a Portland psychologist who focuses on helping clients overcome anxieties linked with climate change. And today, we're going to be talking about the mental health impacts of the January storm, and more generally, the mental health impacts of environmental disasters and extreme weather linked to climate change. And we'll also specifically address how to deal with climate-related fears and anxieties in a healthy and hopefully constructive way. Uh, so let's get started. Welcome to the show, Dr. Doherty. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Gosha. I'm really glad to be here. So we just experienced a major winter storm or a series of snow, ice, and windstorms that lasted over a week, resulted in an almost complete shutdown of our city. Uh, we saw massive tree fall, trees fall and crush cars, power poles, split people's home in half. Uh, we saw people killed by falling trees, electrocuted by power lines, dying from hypothermia. We saw tens of thousands of people uh, with power outages uh, in our metro area. Uh, you know, and I'm wondering what the emotional toll of experiencing and witnessing such extreme weather uh, is on human beings. And, and what kind of emotions do events like this bring up in us? Yeah, that's a great question. Um... Whenever I start thinking about this, I go back to some of the research that I've been involved in in psychology regarding issues like climate change and, and environmental issues. And, um, you know, if you step back a little bit, there's three there's three ways that a big a big kind of abstract issue like global climate change affects our can affect our mental health. If you if you want to simplify it, you know, there's three there's three kinds of baskets of impacts. The first kind of impact is a, is actually disaster impacts, you know, form uh, uh, storms, droughts, floods, things like that or this or this ice storm, you know, and that causes injury, it causes deaths, it causes property destruction. And those that's a fairly easy category for people to understand. It's it's acute, it's right in your face. And then another another um, category of impacts is what um, disaster experts would call indirect impacts. And those, those are impacts that stem from the original disaster that might happen, you know, after the, after the disaster or somehow related to the disaster, such as, you know, the long-term uh, rebuilding and, and problems that would happen if you, if you lost your house or your car, you know, dealing with all the financial issues, you know, the, the health issues, injuries, recovery, and also indirect uh, issues say say your business was closed and you lost money from that. Say a restaurant lost its business, so there's economic ec- economic issues, um, employment issues, um, all kinds of ripple effects from disasters that people might not ne- automatically think about, but that really affect us. Sometimes more than the disaster itself. Sometimes those indirect impacts are are actually much more debilitating. Say if you know your business goes bankrupt, or say a farmer or someone who works on the land it loses their crop, um, and that that tends to, and then that tends to tie in with other social issues that already exist in other other stressors, right? Uh, as you know, the farther away you get from the kind of epicenter from the disaster, the more complex it gets because you're getting it to society and things like that. And the third the third category is just the emotional impacts of sitting. And experiencing something like this, even if you weren't injured at all, or your house didn't didn't have a tree fall on it, or something like that, and that's um, that's a real 
that's a real source of impacts as well. And that's something when I was doing research, say a decade ago or more, people were thinking, oh, that's that's an interesting idea. But with with the advent of climate disasters and things happening around the world, people people I've experienced this. So that leads to the kind of fear of what if, like what if this happened to me or, you know, my concerns about people who have been injured or killed or my concerns about all the, the trees, you know, if someone's really connected with nature and they go to, they go to, you know, Powell Butte Park or something like that. And they see these trees falling down, massive trees falling down and they feel bad. So there's kind of three, three, three ways. And that's, a, that's, that's kind of a good broad way to start. And then it helps people to kind of figure out what's most meaningful for them. Right. And so this emotional basket is one that I feel like we don't really pay very much attention to. Um, but it sounds like, you know, the the sort of emotions that you're mentioning, fear, anxiety. Um, I don't know if there's others. Um, I mean, there there are those things, uh, you know, can they impact people in a significant way? Sure. I mean, the first two categories are more official. Like I can, I can use my homeowner's insurance to, to deal with some of these things, or there's laws and rules about some of this stuff or, or, you know, policies, but you know, the emotional pain and loss, the emotional suffering is, is harder to quantify. And there are, it's often not, um, you know, it's, it's just not a part of, it's not a part of our system. You know, if I, if a tree's destroyed in, 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 in the park, even if I see that tree every day for 20 years in my daily walks, I have no official ownership or power with that tree. And so those losses tend to be what's called the disenfranchised losses. Like they're, they're losses that, that happen, but there's not an official way to mourn or grieve them. And so people often kind of keep them to themselves or they just kind of linger under the surface. Hmm. And so that's one of, that's one of the insidious things of any kind of big issue is the, is the un unacknowledged, unrecognized, unmourned losses. Mm. And that, that, that of course is a big part of, you know, issues around the natural environment. So loss of a species, loss of, you know, trees, loss of seasons, you know, Mm. loss of familiar weather, all those kinds of things. Right. Uh, And then also just watching, you know, whether it be your home, your neighbor's home, or, you know, watching it on the news of all these you know, crushed houses, crushed vehicles, overturned poles, blocked streets, et cetera, et cetera, that we, you know, watched for a week or two weeks over and over and over. I mean. Yeah. And that's an important point because the media, the modern instantaneous media that we have versus, you know, the news and information and social media really can amplify certain issues there was interesting research done after the 9-11 bombings of people being traumatized, feeling traumatized and having post-traumatic stress symptoms, even far away from the disaster and having no, no personal connection with the disaster. But one of the, one of the uh, mediating factors was, was their news intake and how often they had watched really troubling videos. Hmm. And so it's just something for our self-care to be aware of. What we take in, our media diet can really affect our mental health. I mean, there's research mm-hmm. that even shows what, you know, what people watch on TV influences how they think about society, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, um, you know, for example, there's much more crime and disasters and kind of bad people represented on television than in the actual world, you know, and so people, but people tend to then um, transfer some of their 
their thoughts that they pick up from from entertainment and apply it to the world. So mm-hmm. point being is that yes, these trees have fallen and it's a very terrible, sad, and troubling situation. But r- relatively, they're quite rare, mm-hmm. given all of the trees in the city. As as you know, um, these 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 incidents are qu- quite rare. So Got we it. also have to do a little mental um, balancing to realize our physically our body is obviously scared about a huge tree falling on you but the odds of something like that happening are in- incredibly rare it's more yeah. you know the odds of having a house fire and much or getting in a car accident is much much mm-hmm. thousands of times greater than uh, a tree falling um, but it's both it's both and it's both and so that's the challenge we do have to I mean I have a large uh, spruce tree on in my in my backyard in, in northeast Portland and you know, I have checked it and and haven't have had arborists look at it, and that's of course a responsible thing to do if you have trees on your property. But you know, it also makes me me, me think uh, think about it. So there is a reality principle that we have to honor. Mm-hmm. We do have to check on these things. We also have to rein in our emotional reactions if they're kind of running too much. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, and I'm sure you know pretty much. Every Portlander uh, did what I did, which is look around my house and see where the big trees were and what their trajectory could be if they fell. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's very interesting what you're what you're saying. Um, and, and you know, speaking of trees, it, it it really struck me that trees are very symbolic in some ways. Um, you know, and watching them on fall on such a massive scale, which you know, again, is relative because only let's say over a thousand trees fell, you know, and we have millions of trees, but still it's a lot of trees and a lot of large trees. And, and, and you know, trees and humans are in, inextricably linked. Uh, you know, we've depended on, on trees for security, tool making, food. Uh, we have a physical and spiritual connection to trees. And then in our region, especially, uh, they're very symbolic. You know, it's a region that was timber dependent, uh, you know, beautiful trees uh, that that we love, and and so I, you know, I wrote a whole story about trees and and what it means when uh, these trees that we love start to hurt us, and and it kind of struck me that you know I wanted to ask you whether watching these massive, beautiful trees fall is it kind of a reminder of of our fragility uh, and of our own mortality? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like you say, trees have all kinds of um, actual and symbolic value. I mean, there's a there's an interesting thing that I talk about in my work with people regarding environmental psychology, and it's this idea of our environmental identity. So it's our identity in relation to nature and the natural world. And it's it's thinking about your environmental identity is, is, is very similar to thinking about other kinds of identity you might have. You might have a a, a certain identity as a person, like your gender identity, your sexual identity, your racial or ethnic identity, your regional identity. We're, we're talking about a kind of regional Northwest Pacific Northwest identity that people people understand what that is. And but we have an environmental identity. That's our own unique sort of way we think about ourselves in relation to nature and how you know how close closely we're related to trees and other animals. And some people, you know, some people have a very close emotional bond with nature and the natural world or with trees, sometimes with specific, specific animals or trees or places, you know, places they love their pets. Um, 
or just all, you know, the web of life, you know, the ne- other, other species. And they, they see their, their self and nature as being fairly interconnected or even, even sort of overlapping. Right. So for someone like that, it's a personal loss. It's a personal loss to, to lose a, a tree. Um, you know, other people might have it, see it more as a, yeah, it's a, it's a sadness, but it's just a tree and there are thousands of trees and I'm not per- personally attached to it. Um, that, so there's different versions of environmental identity. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a huge history of timber harvesting in, in the Pacific Northwest and people they make their living off of, you know, growing and cutting down trees. Um, so there's different, different beliefs. But so to understand people's um, impacts from a disaster like this, it's helpful to it's helpful to think about their environmental identity because that will predict that will predict a lot about um, how how um, you feel, and then people have all kinds of environmental values that kind of go along with their identity. So people have say you know identity or they have values about right and wrong, you know moral values like what is good like is it good is it good to save a tree or is it is it is it unjust for the trees to to be falling down. Um, or they have symbolic values, what, what trees represent, or aesthetic beauty, values about beauty and nature, or scientific values. They get really interested in, you know, what happened with these trees. Well, it sounds like you know climate stressors maybe have affected tr- root the tree roots, and the, they'll they'll kind of do the science about what happened with these trees and why, which I find interesting. You know, why more trees fell recently C- could be a combination of many factors. The weather patterns over the last couple of years really. Um, weakening some root systems for trees and then the heavily soaked ground from the wetness and then the the snow and then you know the the ice all that that kind of unique configuration of things that happened yeah and it, it's just a symbol i think because they're so large you know it's not a a little mouse species or a little butterfly that you know we rarely see that disappeared because of climate change you know the these are these giant trees that that tower over the environment and here they are falling down. So it, I think it's maybe the size too, for me. Yeah. No, the size literally trees are meant to be long, long lasting. Yeah. And they look so strong. Right. Exactly. And practically, um, you know, it's one thing intellectually to talk about all of this, to talk about disasters, for example. It's another thing to go through a disaster. So we, we could talk about a forest fire, for example. It's another thing to actually be right. in a forest fire. Right. The sound, the wind, the heat is is scary and overwhelming. I happen to have been, I've done a lot of outdoor things in my life, and I happen to have been in the woods when big trees have fallen and when a big tree falls in the woods you can hear it for miles mm. right it's a huge it's a huge thing so you can imagine i mean this is a little troubling to imagine but also imagine literally the sound and the weight and the ground shaking when a huge old growth you know tree right. falls right so yeah it is it is stupendous you know it is a, is a, and if you happen to live through that that will be a life memory that you'll have for the rest of your life. And it could be obviously quite traumatizing if you, if you had a near miss and you right. were, someone you love was almost killed. So it's something to be taken seriously. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. One young woman that I interviewed described it as an earthquake because she, mm-hmm. it, and it was a near miss. I mean, it was literally two feet from her that the, the tree fell in on her house and she thought it was an earthquake because she couldn't see what it was in the, you know, everything was shaking. 
mm-hmm. for some time. So yeah. yeah. And it, yeah. I think, so this sort of leads me to ask you, you know, this was an, a, a storm uh, that people called unprecedented, but um, we're having more and more of these unprecedented weather events, you know, every year, as one of my uh, interviewees said, every year is going mm-hmm. to be unprecedented, is already unprecedented. Yeah. And so what happens when we have these natural disasters or extreme weather events, you know, heat domes, storms, uh, over and over again, you know, multiple times a year, every year? Um, what does that do Um to our mental health? Like what is the cumulative effect of this, of seeing these uh, and being really being in the middle of these disasters? Cause we're all experiencing the heat. We're all experiencing the, the ice, you know, storm. So, you know, do we need to sort of recalibrate how we take these events in uh, because they're just repeating over and over and over? Yeah, I think we do. Um, so this is about our kind of, well, to stay with the environmental identity idea, yeah, we have to modify our environmental identity a bit because what we would think is quote unquote normal weather isn't isn't normal. There is a new normal. And part mm-hmm. of the, one of the dangerous things about climate change is that it's a, it's a new unknown normal. So it's difficult to, pr- to, to predict exactly what, excuse me, is going to happen. It's difficult to predict what's going to happen. And so there, um, not only do we have to make room for different weather patterns, unpredictable, erratic winter weather or changes in the seasons, we have to make room for a big um, gray area about what what that will actually entail. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of mystery involved here. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we step back, it helps, it, it one way I think this can affect people is to, to get more serious about dealing with climate change because these abstract ideas about, you know, climate disruptions there, this is, this is it. Like I tell people, you want to know what climate change is, just look around because we're mm-hmm. in it. This is the climate change that scientists have been warning us about. It's happening around us. Um, mm-hmm. These kinds of storms um, and they, it is impacting people. Um, and so that hopefully will prompt more, action to, you know, mitigate some of the causes. I mean, at this point, we really have to take action on adapting, right. you know, adapting to uh, a change system. And I'm sure this storm will lead to different policies and mm. people being more careful uh, about things. But, you know, psychologically, yes, it is a, it is a, it is a, a shifting baseline in what our, our expectations are. Oddly enough, people get can get, can get used to most anything, so mm. we will get a, habituated to this mm. kind of thing, mm. and we already have really. If you step back, mm. people have already become used to more question marks about weather and planning and things like that. And you know, um, this is both good and bad. I mean, people have I know myself even I have um, you know kind of low grade PTSD from the heat dome and from fires. And so at certain times of the year, I'll be really apprehensive about the weather and, you know, Labor Day, I'll always be thinking about where the winds and how's the weather and things like that. So we do, we do, we do have these kind of lingering reactions that are unpleasant, Hmm. but it also empowers us. Like we're, we're, we're smart and we learn and we keep growing and evolving. Right. And, um, you know, so part of this work is always coming back to, you know, this is a teachable moment. I can have a growth mindset. I can learn about this. 
I can apply my skills, you know, so it's easy to become very disempowered about all this sort of stuff. And once you give people a chance to express their feelings, often they'll sort of pick themselves up and start naturally problem solving. Um, but, but, you know, it, it helps to sort of recommit to having a, a good, a good mindset and, you know, focusing on what we can do in our actions and things like that. Got it. Got it. Now, You've dedicated your entire practice to helping people deal psychologically with the impacts of climate change. Uh, you're one of a small but growing number of psychologists and therapists uh, nationwide who focus uh, on this specifically uh, on, on climate. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could give me a, a few examples without breaching any confidentiality rules of what type of issues do clients seek to resolve in sessions with you? Like when they come to see you, a climate psychologist, a climate therapist, what do they come with? Is it just anxiety about a storm or is it a, 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 a wide array of issues connected to climate? Yeah, I would say it's a wide array. If I step back a little bit, I mean, yeah, I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, but before I became a psychologist, I used to do outdoor work. I did wilderness uh, wilderness guiding, and I was a professional river guide. And I worked with Greenpeace, so I had some experience with environmental work and with just people's connections with the outdoors. In fact, one of the reasons why I became a psychologist was I was really curious about all the positive aspects of people's connections with nature and the things I had seen in some of these outdoor trips. So a lot of my early connections here were quite positive, uh, but along the way, I I learned about climate change and was a, a part of some research about climate change and mental health um, that kind of led me into this this focus now. So it's not something I've necessarily chosen to do. It's, some, it's something that's kind of chosen me. Hmm. And I'm working mm -hmm. on a, I'm working on a manuscript right now, a book for the public about coping. So I'm, so I'm hmm. I am for better or for worse immersed in this now. Yeah. But in my in my psychology practice, in my counseling practice, I've seen a variety of clients over the years. And I still see some of my 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 long-term clients that aren't necessarily focused on climate. Mm -hmm. But recently, in the last three or four years, particularly in the last three years, the idea of people having eco-anxiety and climate climate concerns has really, you know, exploded around around the world because of mm -hmm. because of events and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Yeah, eco-anxiety. So that's kind of a new term. Uh so 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 what 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 you know what do people come to you with? Well, you know, um Eco-anxiety is actually not a therapy, it's not a scientific term. It came out of the media. It was, it was used mm -hmm. to sort of describe people's concerns about, uh, about the, the future. But, you know, I think uh, there's a number of ways this manifests for people. Sometimes people are specialists or professionals in conservation or in climate science or in disaster response, and they are dealing with fatigue, burnout, despair, um, disillusionment. And that's, that's something that that's helpful to talk through and to help them to restore their faith and regain their direction. Mm -hmm. Um, young, young people can be, um, uh, young people can be really concerned about the future. Um, you know, if you're an adult and you've lived for a while, you realize you've made it through various challenges over your life and, you know, it's likely you'll be able to make it through uh, uh, future ones. But with young people, they're still, they're just coming onto the scene. So it's a really, it's kind of scary time. And then all across the developmental spectrum, young children might, because they're very concrete thinkers, they might get really concerned about 
kind of abstract climate stuff, young parents, people who are considering having children or have young children will mm. will will be having ethical questions about, you know, having children and how to best care for them. Elders actually, if um uh, People have lived, say they've lived a life of strong environmental awareness and values. They, they, they're prone to feeling really depressed or disillusioned or feeling concerned about their legacy, mm-hmm. um, particularly if they work for years on environmental mm-hmm. initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that this comes out for people. It's never separate from your life. Right. We always have our life. So we have to deal with our relationships and our jobs and our self-esteem and our our, you know, our everyday, you know, moods and things. Like I say, we, one of my catchphrases is we have issues and issues so that we have capital I issues. Those are the big, the big things we care about in the world. Um, and we have our lowercase I issues, which is our stuff, which is our style, our strengths and weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, our, our neuroses, our traumas. So when I'm really working with someone, I'm trying to get them healthy in both ways. Like I want them to take on the things that are meaningful in the world for them. I want them to be a good citizen and to really take action in whatever way is meaningful for them. Uh, and part of part of a way to do that is to really get their own personal health in line, like really get clear. Like, are there certain yeah. reasons why environmental um, issues impact you? Mm. Is it because of your values? Is it because of something happened to you when you were a child? Is it because of your relationships? Mm. Is it because of your fears for your children? Like, what is the underlying what's the underlying reasons why you're sensitive? Mm, it uh, works together. Yeah. Always. And some of the underlying reasons where we care, there's a, th- there's a saying in therapy, you know, we hurt where we care. Mm. So, you know, if you're, if you're a listener that's, that's impacted by the, the recent ice and snowstorm, that's because something you care about has been threatened, whether mm. your values for yourself, your family, uh, for your, for your house, for your, for your business, for the community, for trees, for other animals, something's been damaged. So, you know, when we tap into our values, that can be very a healthy, a healthy part of this stuff. It, it helps things to make more sense. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, now, you just mentioned that you are working on a manuscript uh, for a book about how to cope with climate anxiety. Um, so most of us, you know, most of our listeners and readers don't seek out uh, climate therapists. Uh, You're probably one of the few climate therapists in the city. Uh, But, you know, many people are concerned and anxious about climate change. And and so I'm wondering if you could give our listeners some suggestions of um, what's a good way of dealing, you know, with climate anxiety, fear, despair, and guilt uh, that we all, uh, you know, carry in uh, uh, one, you know, amount or another. How, how can people move forward given what's going on with climate warming? Yeah, I think it's important to, um, I mean, um, what would I say? I think having some anxiety or concerns about climate change is an, inc- entirely normal. It's an entirely normal. We know the best scientists and minds in our society have given us great data and reports about what's going on and we see the evidence. And so... There's nothing, there's no form, it's at a certain level, you know, at a basic level, eco-anxiety is not a form of mental impairment. Mm. It's, it's, it's a form of being intelligent and being smart and being proactive. So we want to validate that, um, mm. you know, it's a, anxiety is a useful and normal emotion. Right. It keeps us safe if there's a mysterious unknown threat and we're 
it'll stop us from going into a bad situation, right? So anxiety is really our friend. Like all our emotions are normal and our friends. So we want to kind of, mm-hmm. we want to honor the healthy part of anxiety, but, you know, we want to shrink the unhealthy part, which is like ruminating on, ruminating on anxiety or amplifying it or kind of scaring ourselves or beating ourselves up by watching news over and over again or going down internet rabbit holes, you know, doom scrolling. So we want to, we want to, you know, like as with all emotions, we want to, we want to find the healthy side and we want to limit, limit the downside. Um, one way to do that is to actually have a whole range of emotions. You know, part of the problem with something like ego anxiety is not the anxiety itself is that there's no other emotions around it to balance it out. So I, I have this like metaphor of like an emotions party, right? So if I have an emotions party and only anxiety comes, that's not really mm. a, a really a great party. But if I have curiosity come and I have, mm. you know, compassion and I have, you know, even anger or, um, you know, sadness or um, patience, you know, other kinds of them, then I can, then I have a full, more of a full range. Mm. So we want to try to express a, a, a full range of feelings. That then, then the the sad feelings have, are are allowed to just be themselves, mm. and they they do their work. Um, mm. So gratitude, you know, curiosity, gratitude, patience, you know, inspiration, mm. um, those kinds of things. Empowerment. Yeah. Uh, again, even anger. Like I said, getting angry is is often seen as not as not healthy, but a little bit of anger is quite healthy because it, it helps us to stand up for ourselves and to take action. Right. And you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, these natural disasters are, are, are uh, you know, learning experiences where we are uh, learning how to deal with them, how to better prepare uh, both as individuals or families and as a community. Uh, so, so in a way, that's kind of a healthy energy uh, that mm-hmm. can light a fire under that preparation work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, many people seek out the help of friends or counselors or therapists, and it's perfectly fine to bring up your concerns about the weather or climate change with your therapist, because it's just one more thing of real life. You shouldn't feel some stigma about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, a thing like the storm is everyone's talking about it because everyone's affected by it. You know, right. the therapist just as well. That's what's that's what's unique about climate change is that when we have the heat dome or or smoke or fire evacuation warning, like therapists are, everyone's affected by it. So it, it's, mm-hmm. there's a great equalizing, there's a great equalizing aspect of this. And then it, it's just important to bring up uh, the social justice aspects here. Yes, everyone is affected, but not everyone is equally affected. Mm-hmm. So even this winter storm, like all disasters will have the worst effects on people with, with least power, wealth, and privilege. So people that are, don't have a home who are living outdoors, people that are, are renting or in, in, in kind of, you know, um, uneasy living situations, right. right? Fewer resources to to rent a hotel room. Exactly. So exactly. So there's a, there's a whole, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a fairness and justice aspect to these things. Um, just, something always to keep in mind because we don't know what other people's lives are like. Mm-hmm. So we want to, we don't want to make assumptions about that. Yeah. And, and I guess this sort of brings me to ask you whether, um, you know, beyond preparing as individuals, 
whether we need to do more as communities to prepare uh, for these mental, uh, for these uh, climate change related uh, weather events and, uh, you know, prepare uh, not just for, you know, having supplies or batteries or things like that, but just prepare in a way that will safeguard really our mental health and, and, and well-being uh, as people, uh, you know, and, and allow for, uh, for, I don't know, community hubs or some other ways mm-hmm. that w- where people can be connected because the human connection really is, is something that's helpful to people in climate disasters or natural disasters. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you brought up community because one of the, one of the, one of the big problems of climate change and some of these issues is that it, it can really divide communities, mm-hmm. natural disasters and, and, um, Natural disasters and technological disasters. Natural disaster like a like a storm and a technological disaster like a chemical spill or whatever. They they can have different impacts. Some disasters really bring communities together. People help each other, and it's it's actually a even if the disaster is difficult, it's a positive experience overall. Um, um, that people bond, they help each other, they reaffirm their their connections, uh, and the community can emerge even stronger from it. Uh, and then other disasters really divide communities, particularly ones where there's some fault or some inequality, um, or some negligence, um, or where there's a big divide between the haves and the have nots. And so that's where we have to be careful with the storm and with other events to come. Will it divide us as a community or will it bring us together? Mm-hmm. And so that's a big, you know, meta question. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think, you know, uh, and, and there are things we can do to, to make those two outcomes. We can affect that by how we talk about it, by how we talk about the disasters, by how we accept other people's beliefs, by how we create systems so people feel like, you know, the situation's fair. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, different permitting and fees around tree cutting and different things like that. And so this is an opportunity to make sure policies are, are healthy and fair to people, um, educating people about the benefits of policies. So I think that's, that's a big takeaway as a community Mm -hmm. for this disaster. Like, and that's, that's going to be a general question going forward. How is this event bringing us together or how is it dividing us? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and we don't want to let politics and um, differences um, come between us in times like this. We want mm-hmm. we want to work together, um, and then that translates to our personal lives too. Like, how can I get social support? Like you say, how can I work with other people proactively mm-hmm. to work on prevention in the future so yeah. I don't feel alone and isolated? So, two big things going forward for people are. Having a sense of empowerment, like when I have some control over a situation or some action or ability, I feel better. And then I also feel better when I'm not alone or Mm -hmm. isolated. Mm -hmm. So now taking action is not a magic bullet. It's not going to affect all of our angst. It's not going to get rid of all of our angst about climate or things like that. But it's certainly a very healthy thing to do uh, going forward. Absolutely. And there were great examples of uh, uh, neighbors helping neighbors um, in this storm, but I think we do have a long way to go still to prepare as a community and as individuals. Mm-hmm. So, um, you host a podcast, uh, yourself, uh, and it's called climate change and happiness. And, uh, 
those two words don't often appear together. So I'm wondering uh, if you can talk a little bit about why you chose those two words to name your podcast and, and how can people who cope with climate change stay happy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I do that podcast with a colleague of mine in Finland, actually, and he's an, emo he's an emotions researcher and I talk about climate psychology and it, the podcast is named that way uh, on purpose because it really begs the question about what, what does it mean to be happy in the modern world? And, and there was such a uh, one dimensional view about uh, climate change that we want to, we want to look at all the different emotions and things that, that happen. So our, our podcast is actually fairly, um, it's real, like we don't sugarcoat issues, but it's also upbeat because it tell it, we're always telling stories of people taking action and very inspiring things. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the paradox of this. Once you get into it, it, and when, when you first get into climate or any of these issues, it's really grim and difficult and off-putting, but the more you stick with it, the more you start to find success stories and, and meet mm -hmm. inspiring people that make it worth it. You know, uh, even just doing this podcast with you makes me feel good to know that I'm taking part in a dialogue and people will listen. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's part of it. So, um, there's no, you know, climate change is a major public health global problem and we should take action on it, but it doesn't, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't have the power to rob us of our happiness, of our happiness. There are many, if we are honest about our feelings and being in the moment, there are many things that are positive in the world, in our lives, things to be thankful for, things to enjoy. So one of the insidious problems with climate change is that it's really hampered people's kind of permission to feel happy, mm. you know, or to feel joy. And so we want to kind of try to reclaim that that ability in an honest, ethical way, knowing that there are problems that we need to also take action on. Well, thank you for doing that. Uh, I will be sure to link to your podcast in the mm -hmm. uh, episode notes, because I think many people will be interested in uh, listening to, to that and to figure out how they can infuse a little more happiness into their, their lives, despite the anxiety we feel. So um, yeah. what, one thing I think that you do bring up in your podcast and in your uh, research is uh, this uh, concept of using the outdoors as therapy. Um, I think it's a concept called ecotherapy. Um, how does this work, if you can explain how does this work in a situation like this, you know, for example, with a storm where the natural world that's around us, including the trees most recently, are potentially a menace that 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 could could hurt us? Um, you know, that it's hot outside or it's icy outside, or the trees are falling. How do we use the natural world in, in a situation like that to heal us? Yeah. Well, in general, um, and people know this just intuitively, but when we're when we have contact with a safe, you know, beautiful, you know, healthy outdoor space, it's 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 very healthy for us personally. It's good for our nervous system, it's good for our emotions. Uh, being out in nature can give people time to think and reflect on their life you know, make big decisions, get a sense of where they are and, 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 you know, in the, in the spectrum of their life. And there's like a dose response, you know, effect. I can, a five minute walk around the block mm -hmm. during the workday can help me to clear my head and to, you know, maybe have some insights about a problem I'm working on. 
but an afternoon or a day can really be a, a break or a rest. And I can might take a retreat for a weekend or go to a beautiful place where I can get away and recharge. Uh, and obviously people have very special experiences when they spend a lot of time in nature, like hiking on out hiking for days or weeks, you know? So there's a lot of positive things there. Um, many people have special places they go with their family, you know, to the beach or to the mountains or to the desert. Um, um, so that's one half of it. Um, so that, you know, ecotherapy or outdoor therapy is just kind of harnessing some of that. So that might be therapists that go, uh, walking with their clients, you know, rather than sitting in an office or, or therapists that, you know, talk to clients about their outdoor experiences and, and help them to do more, to be more healthy. Uh, so that's, that's part of that. It is, it is a challenge. And I've seen this more recently where, because of damages to the environment or climate risks that people do feel like their typical restoration has been threatened. Like they don't feel comfortable. They feel um, grief or loss when they see drought or dying trees or something like that, or, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously fires and smoke and things like that. So that, that's a, that's a major kind of learning experience for all of us is it's really Mm -hmm. about, um, learning to be, um, we need to have compassion for ourselves and, and for the natural world. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not the tree's fault or the earth's fault, you know, the, the place's fault. So we need to, we need to learn to love, um, places that are damaged, you Mm -hmm. know, and we need to realize that life takes many, many forms. So, so it's kind of an invitation for us to grow up a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, as people to realize nature isn't always, just there for me. Right. And that it's changing. It's changing. And sometimes I need to be the one that's doing the restoration as well of nature. I need to care for, for damaged places. And I, I, we just did an episode, well, we just recorded an episode on this topic with a person who specializes in, in this kind of area. And what she said was helpful. She said, it's, it's not the, it's not actually being in, in damaged nature. That's the issue. It's people thinking about it and that becomes the barrier. But when this person does retreats to damaged areas, as soon as people get to the place and begin to see it, they don't have that experience because they see the life and they see the place, right? Mm -hmm. So some of this barrier about um, us reconnecting with nature is really, it's in our heads. Mm -hmm. Because once we're out, once we're with, with places, with trees, with animals in the woods, our natural curiosity and our natural, you know, connections will come up. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting to think about. So how some we of perceive is, is, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a mental barrier. Hmm. Um, and then we can also see that, I mean, nature restores itself over time. Sure. Um, and, you know, yeah. like watching the uh, nature in the Columbia Gorge where we exactly. had the wildfires come back um, you know, mm-hmm. and noticing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's not to deny that, you know, things can't be dangerous in nature. Obviously, if you're in a, in a severe storm, you want to take shelter uh, and be careful. Uh, it doesn't mean being foolhardy or being naive. I mean, obviously, if you're at the coast, you want to be careful of sneaker waves. And if you're in the mountains, you want to be careful of not getting lost and, and taking care of yourself. So there's a responsibility, obviously, that comes with being out outdoors. Um, so we don't want to confuse that. But yeah. that doesn't, we shouldn't st- we shouldn't withhold ourselves from our, our love for nature. Um, we should get out and keep, keep experiencing it. 
Uh, last question before I let you go. Um, according to the research that I've read uh, and, and, you know, news reports, children and teenagers are especially vulnerable to climate change related distress and anxiety. And I have a five-year-old, um, and so I think about this a lot. Um, and I'm wondering if you can briefly address what parents can do to help their children better process their emotions around this, because children, you know, also will see the news that their parents watch. My son saw the photos of fallen trees that destroyed houses because I had to work at home. So children are exposed to this, even if they're not watching the news all the time, they just hear about it because adults talk about it. So they're taking this stuff in, they know there's, you know, stuff happening uh, in nature, uh, you know, that the natural world is changing. And so how do we help them process that? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I would I would say that, you know, children and teens, I actually personally don't think they're more vulnerable than any other people. I in my experience, people can be vulnerable to climate distress across across the age spectrum and that um elders now statistically young people are are slightly more concerned about climate when you look at public opinion polls, but it's only a statistical difference. Mm -hmm. the, the, the amount of, of, of concern about for climate in the U.S. Is, is fairly similar across all age groups, right? So uh, we just want to, we want to just kind of avoid that stereotype that young people are somehow more connected with nature than elders, because it's just not true. Um, and um, I think children are both vulnerable in some ways, but they're also resilient. You know, the nice thing about children is that they don't have the adult abstract thinking experiences that we have, they are much more in the moment. Mm -hmm. They see nature much more directly and they can have much more fun. They don't necessarily make decisions or, you know, label one nature place as good and one bad. They, they can enjoy a Creek or do things because it's just, they're much more in the moment. And so, um, that's something that's really helpful. And they have a shorter attention span and they, they're easily, you know, they can easily get it entertained. So we can learn a lot from children, actually. Uh, and it, you can kind of get onto their level a little bit. It's kind of fun. Um, uh, and teens, you know, um, can also be very inspiring because they see the world new and they and they see injustice. They see things that don't make sense and they're not and then they're they're not afraid to speak out. So I think there's a lot of strength with young people. Uh, and yes, there's some vulnerabilities. Children can be very concrete in their thinking, very egocentric. So um, yes, I remember years ago with my daughter, uh, who's 16 now, but when she was younger, uh, during the Jap Japanese Fukushima nuclear um, meltdown and, and, and um, tsunami that happened in Japan, we were watching it on the news. It, you know, I think on real in real time, the day it was happening. And she said, once the When's the tsunami going to come to Portland? Mm. You know, because that would be a very age-appropriate question for a child to think. Well, if there's a tsunami; it's probably going to come here too. So, young children can sometimes have difficulty separating themselves from global issues. So, we have mm. to kind of we have to reassure them and make sure they understand that just because something's happening, and you might not realize it, uh, they might not ask you, but they may be taking this in. So you need to kind of do some proactive reassurance to say when something's happening in another part of the world, that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen here. Kids want to know basic things. Am I going to be safe? How are we doing? You know, and we, we can do some extra reassurance about that. Uh, 
mm -hmm. they might be picking up news that we're not aware of and kind of ruminating on it. Um, and also teens, you know, can be, um, they can be prone to, you know, disillusionment and, and various things and really understanding, you know, helping them to sort of see that life is, life is long and there are, you know, there'll be ways to work on things for, for a while. Um, and, you know, to honor their values and to, you know, to take action. So, so I think it's, it's both as a parent, we want to kind of, we want to recognize the strength that our children have and the joy and the, and the specialness that they bring in. Um, and then we also, we want to kind of try to, try to take care of some of the, some of the, uh, the, the, you know, the risks. So with young children, it's really about play, a connection with nature, um, active activities, concrete activities in saving complex, you know, environmental problem information till they're, till they're older. Um, I think one of the sayings with it, you know, it was like no, no disasters before fourth grade or something like that. <laughs> we, we really want to, we, you know, we want to build a safe and healthy connection to nature with children first. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, if you didn't get that as a child, you can build it now. That's the other thing. It's never too late. So as a parent, you know, um, as we parent, we can also put that energy to ourselves. It's a good opportunity well. mm -hmm. Yeah. to go yeah. out in nature. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, this has been really a great conversation. I really mm -hmm. appreciate it. And we're going to be following this topic closely in the future stories in the Oregonian and um OregonLive.com, and I am going to be dropping a few links to uh, some of the uh, stories and uh, podcasts we mentioned in the show notes uh, of this show. So thank you so much for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, please give us a five-star rating and review an Apple podcast. It helps other people find the show. Uh, the best way to support our journalism and stories like this is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pot support. Until next time. Thank you. Thanks, Kosha.